Father, the um, phrase that kept coming to mind, we were singing that was uh, hearing the voice of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, looking out over the crowd and saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. God, there is no greater love that has ever been seen than the love that was demonstrated in that moment on that cross. Jesus willingly gave up his spirit and cried out, it's finished. Thank you. And we can taste that grace even this morning. You guide us and direct us, cause our eyes to see you clearly. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take them to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we will be this morning. We are about halfway through, which is crazy, halfway through our study of the book of Ecclesiastes together, and we are entering into... <laughs> Christmas shopping season. Amen, amen, amen. I hope, hope you have your list made out. hope you're ready to go. Um, it's kind of insane to me that um, we're going we're gonna to finish Ecclesiastes here in just a couple of weeks. Um, and then uh, we are going to begin our, uh, our Advent series, um, which I'm really looking forward to. We're going to be doing a series called um, You Shall Be Called. Couldn't remember what it was. <laughs> it's so amazing, I just can't forget the name ever. But we're going to be looking at that awesome verse in Isaiah chapter 9 where it talks about his name shall be called, that's what the title is, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace. And then we're going to end that four week series with our Christmas Eve service, and we're going to talk about how his name shall be called Emmanuel which gives me goosebumps just thinking about what that means. It means that God showed up. It means that God showed up when we were broken and separated from him and completely helpless to do anything about that separation on our own. But instead of leaving us and just shaking his head in scorn, God showed up on a rescue mission and a rescue mission that every single one of us in this room is desperately in need of. And that's kind of where we're going to land this morning, albeit I'll confess out of the gate, it will not feel like we're going to land there because Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is much like the book of Proverbs, where the book of Proverbs just kind of keeps saying things that are kind of all over the map. But as I was reading through Ecclesiastes 7, it kind of of singed for me. So let, let let me read the first four verses kind of launch us into this. First four verses of Ecclesiastes chapter seven says this. A good name is better than fine perfume. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting since that's the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. So let me ask you this question at the onset. It'll kind of set our stage for us. How many of you enjoy a good wedding reception? Raise your hand. 
You love a good wedding reception. There's a lot of reasons you could like wedding receptions, but, but not the least of which is all those goofy dances you get to do. Right? Particularly the ones that you actually know the steps to. One of my personal favorites is that cha-cha dance because it tells you what the steps are. Everybody clap your hands. I got that one down cold. A little more complicated, Cotton Eye Joe. I'm working on it, okay? I'm getting there. But everybody's favorite, the chicken dance. Right? And you get to go and be stupid, and you're going to be like, I can't believe Frank just did that. Oh, my kids are here, and they're like, I can't believe Dad just did that. <clears throat> You, you get to enjoy the dance and do the dance and, and laugh with your friends and eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, it's that moment where the celebration of this young couple coming together or not so young couple coming together. It's this amazing time and we get to celebrate it. What Solomon says in the verses we just read is, let's be clear, if you run to weddings but avoid funerals, you are a fool. How many of you love going to a good funeral? Exactly. So let me, let, me, let me lay it out this way for you. In Genesis 1, you got the beautiful story of creation. You've got creating things and saying it's good, and then creating things and saying it's good, and God creating things and saying it's good, and oh, it's so very good, and he, he kind of walks through this whole thing. It's so, so wonderful. It's so very wonderful. You get to the end of Genesis 1, and all things are created. It's so wonderful that it's like the guy, the author, telling the story about creation. is like, and it was so very good. So very good, I'm going to tell you about it again in Genesis chapter 2. And he walks through Genesis 2, just kind of filling in some details and giving us some more information about creation. And in chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. In that moment... We came into existence. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You can, if you want, argue the details of the things that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Many people do. Well, are those literal 24-hour day periods? Is that a day age? Is that, I mean, is that an extended period of time? That word yom in the Hebrew can mean a period of time. Is it, there a gap between certain verses? I mean, how does this all lay out? And you can argue as much as you want, and until Jesus comes back and sets us all straight, we can have those arguments. But the one thing you cannot argue at all is that one day you will die. One day that breath that God breathed into your nostrils will be returned to him. And as you began in dust, so you shall return. Solomon says it's in reflecting on that truth that there's great wisdom. It's in reflecting on those truths about that we see in mourning and in sorrow. I mean, there's joy. Joy is good. Joy is necessary. Joy is timely. But to ignore mourning is to miss out on necessary perspective, particularly because you become more aware in those moments that your life is just a vapor. It's passing quickly. And so each of us needs to embrace the insensitive truth. And one day, we're all going to breathe our last, and we've got but a few moments left. So what are you doing with them? 
And that's how I want to couch the rest of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that, that Solomon almost is sitting at a funeral reflecting on the life of the one who's being memorialized. And I, I want to challenge you. These are the things, Solomon is saying, these are the things that you want to have said about you at you, your funeral. The very first one is the beginning of, of verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. Solomon says, I don't care how good you smell. If at the mention of your name, everybody rolls their eyes, vanity of vanities, meaningless. So you know when you realize what kind of reputation comes with a name? When you try to name your babies. My wife and I had a number of conversations as the kids were coming about, what about this name? And there was one particular name I will not share because there's a few of you here with that name and I don't want to insult you. But there is, it was her, not me, I promise. But there was one, <laughs> she wasn't thinking about you. She didn't know you yet, I promise. But at the, the mention of this name was like, I like that name. She's like, we ain't ever naming our kid that. Why? Because in first grade, that kid wet himself. It's like 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. Every time I hear that name, that's what comes to mind. For me, and I will name the name because it's my father-in-law and my brother-in-law's name and some of you here too, but the name Tim. Tim, bring, there was no way I was naming a kid of mine Tim. Tim was the evil man in second grade. Second grade, mind you. He should have known better. In second grade, who, when I was standing outside a recess near a mud puddle, he pushed me into the mud puddle. My mom came and gave me new clothes. I got changed. Second recess. Guess what Tim did again? Pushed me in the mud puddle. My mom came, gave me new clothes. I don't know what school I went to, but we got a third recess. I went home after that one. Didn't get changed. It's like, Mom, just take me home. It ain't worth it. So Tim will never be in it. But when you go to name your children, you, it's not how easily or smoothly the name rolls off your tongue. It's the stories and character that's associated with people that have that same name that you remember. And what Solomon says is, when your name comes up, what do people think? What does it mean to have a good name? It means to be a person of integrity, a person of real character. There are no cover-ups. Integrity means your yes is yes, your no is no. Integrity means that you will fulfill your word. You will act with honesty in every situation, even if the outcome looks like it's going to bring you harm. That's integrity. Integrity is it doesn't matter what all the surrounding circumstances are. I have no choice to make but to do what is right. That is integrity. That is a person who's got a good name. That's what you want people to say about you at your funeral, isn't it? Look at verse five. It's better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This, too, is futile. The character that you want to be named as having at your funeral is not just being a person of integrity, but it's being teachable. Being a person who is teachable. Solomon wants the guys around him to walk up to him and tell him the truth, but, but think about how many fools surround a king. How many fools are there just to appease him? So instead of speaking truth to him, it's just they're fools. The fool is like a, a thorn that you're trying to use to heat the pot of water. There's a lot of noise when you burn thorns. There's lots of popping and crackling, but there's little heat. There's very little energy given off. It's the same thing as, 
as fools. The value, the, the warmth, the energy comes from when people speak hard truth into your life. So are you teachable? So when somebody comes into your life and says, listen, I, I need to have a conversation with you. This is what I see, and this is dangerous. This is wrong. How do you respond when they stand in front of you and rebuke you like that? How do you respond? There's a, there's a number. Do you, do you deny the, the viability of that rebuke? That's not true. I mean, you haven't really actually listened. You haven't actually heard it. But when somebody's speaking truth, is it, no, that can't possibly. That's not me. Nope, not it. Nope. Or do you throw it back on them? Yeah, well, you're ugly. As immature as that seems, that's kind of what we're doing, isn't it? Do you demonize the person who's bringing you that hard truth? So, so just a, a, a pro tip for you. If somebody always has an enemy, that person is actually the problem. If somebody always has a story about how somebody else has done them wrong, the truth is they're the ones that have real issues. So when somebody confronts you, do you deny it? Do you throw it back on them? Do you demonize them? Or do you own what you can own, admit it, and begin to work to surrender it to God? So ask yourself the question, who do you surround yourself with? Who is surrounding you? Are you surrounded by fools, or are you surrounded by those people who speak truth? And here's another piece of counsel. If you don't have someone in your life who disagrees with you regularly and everybody around you is always agreeing with everything you said, it is not because you are all that. It's because you've surrounded yourself with fools. Look at verse eight. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Man, I, I want people to say at my funeral, man, he, he finished well. Didn't matter how hard he started, but he finished well. Man, anybody can start. I mean, anybody can be named to the starting team of a basketball team, right? Anybody, you're the starting five, you're in. But, but what really matters isn't if you start, it's when the game's on the line at the end, can you finish? Do they count on you? Are they asking you to take that last shot? Will you persevere when it's difficult, when it's hard, Probably more difficult than that, more challenging. Will you persevere when the pressure isn't on? I think we, we tend to do well when times are tough. Our prayer life is never sweeter than when we're going through dark, difficult moments. Because it's forcing us to our knees and we're crying out in, in beautiful, heartfelt, just transparent prayers before God because we're going through such difficult times. Well, similarly, we, we never eat healthier than when, after we've been to the doctor and he's like, your cholesterol is out of control. But, but what about when you're not going through difficult times? What about when, when things aren't bad for your health? I mean, what, what, what's happening on just a normal day? You, your prayer life, are you even praying other than, oh yeah, thanks for the food? Are you scourging yourself with things you shouldn't be eating? I mean, what, what, what happens when the pressure's not on? And, and I'm going to make a very specific application, and so bear with me on this one. But parents, are you persevering? And, and let, me, let me tell you what I mean by that. When there's children in the house, <laughs> we tend to show up at church. You know why? 
because we want our kids there. We want our kids to be in youth group. We want our kids to show up at Sunday school. We want our kids to be in the worship service. So, so I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to go. And the cry of the modern day church is, we're losing our teens. No, we're not. We never had them. There is no people group who can read through fakeness like your teens. They know full well how shallow your faith is, and it's demonstrated fully when they move out of the house and you become a ghost at church. Are you persevering? Are you finishing strong? Or have you decided that you deserve a break from God? Okay, keep moving, they got guns. Just kidding, verse nine. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry. For anger abides in the heart of fools. I don't want to show up at my funeral. Of course, I will be at my funeral, I guess. Can't say that like that. It's funny. When I prepare, it's like, I cannot say that. It doesn't make sense. And that's one of the things I said over and over. Don't say that, Frank. Don't say that. You're getting, oh, well. I wouldn't want it to be said of me at my funeral that I was somebody who was quick to become angry. How fast do you flash to anger when somebody disagrees with you? How quickly does the steam come bursting from your ears when you don't get what you want? I mean, if you, if you regularly are exploding towards anger and experiencing bursts of anger, and then afterwards you stop and look back and you're like, where did that come from? Solomon tells us very clearly, anger abides in the heart of fools. That anger is living inside of us taken up residence in us because of a number of things, not the least of which are unresolved issues. It's like a scar that hasn't healed properly. When you have this, this mark on your arm and it's, okay, it just doesn't look too bad and then, okay, yeah, well, I had an incident a few days ago, that's okay, it's healing, it's healing, and somebody touches it and it's like, yeah! Well, obviously, underneath the scar, it hasn't healed the way it's supposed to and when it from within you bursts these Angry patterns, it's an evidence that something is still broken inside of you. That can be because we've sinned and we haven't confessed and forsaken it. It can be because we've been wronged, but we haven't followed the biblical pattern of confrontation. Anger abides in the heart of fools. Why? Psalm 14 tells us, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If anger is abiding in the heart of fools, what then is happening is, is that while the, the, the one that flashes to anger may not be a professing atheist, he is a practical one. Because what he has done is instead of listening to how God has commanded they deal with their problems, has said, I have a better way. No, I think I'm going to do it this way. I think I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to give it time. And as we talked about a number of weeks ago, time heals Nothing. And so the difficulty is we continue to do those things and in essence we are becoming practical atheists because we are ignoring the very commands of God about how to deal with these things. And he tells us so very clearly, you sinned and you confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. You, you, you've wronged somebody and you leave your gift at the altar and you go seek their forgiveness. You've been wronged by somebody then you take account of what they've done, how, what it cost, and then you go see them alone and confront them. Not my words. Those are God's. Verse 10. 
Don't say, oh, do I have time to do this one? That's not in the verse, sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll do this one quick. Don't say, why were the former days better than these, since it's not wise of you to ask this. So, so here's the point. Solomon's saying, stop living in the past. Knock it off. You keep saying, oh, the former days were awesome. It was amazing. You know, back in the good old days, back in the good, good old days, everybody was a varsity starter. You never find the bench warmers, do you? Every story, well, you know, I won state, but shush. You've like done all this stuff with revisionist history to make it something else, but, but that's not it. Maybe more uh, practical application here is this, is stop whining about how you missed the good old days. Oh, back in the good old days, okay, they were old, yes. They weren't so good. Uh, we were just doing Bible study on Wednesday night, and one of the things that came up is, man, uh, I love living in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, because when you have surgery, you don't have to bite down on a leather strap anymore. Oh, but the good old days, the good old days, you had to listen to music on vinyl records that skipped a lot. The good old days, tuberculosis outbreaks were common. The good old days included Milli Vanilli. All right, so don't talk about the good old days. Man. They were old. They weren't necessarily good. So what we should do is learn from those past days, but don't seek to live there. Get to work now in the present. Verse 19. Sorry, I'm skipping time-wise. Verse 19. <clears throat> Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than 10 rulers of a city. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than 10 rulers of a city. What Solomon is saying, are you that one person who's going to purposely follow after wisdom, taking God at his word? Because if you are, you will be of more value than 10 politicians. That wasn't a hard one to sell, was it? <laughs> well, you're going to love what I have to say here in a minute then. This is going to be great. Position, party, power can never outdo the wisdom of God. Wisdom is the fear of God. Wisdom is not the fear of what will happen if somebody else gets elected. As followers of Jesus Christ, we do not have a moral obligation to any candidate, period. As followers of Jesus Christ, we do not have a moral obligation to any party, period. We have an obligation to the integrity that flows from knowing and fearing God to keep his commandments and to leave results up to him. So, <laughs> I wouldn't clap yet. <laughs> I can see my notes. Now, I, I know your hearts are exactly in the right place. I know you desire him. I know that this will fall, this is preaching to the choir for 99% of us. Um, it's also safe for me to do it this October versus next October, so it's good. <laughs> we need a biblical worldview. We do not need a political worldview. So let me differ differentiate the two. A political worldview means what I do is motivated, driven, limited by what it takes to get a specific person elected. The political worldview. That's the end goal. That person must be elected, so everything I do is pointing towards that. Biblical worldview is, I vote according to God's word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, 
and not according to my wallet or what the latest evangelical leader has told me how to vote. And I allow God to be God. So we should use the freedom that God has allowed for us in this season, but we must remember we cannot thwart God's plans either by screwing them up or by manipulating them. Uh, something that I think we forget so often, the cause of Jesus Christ is never limited by the violent, crass, freedom-crushing emperor. The cause of Jesus Christ often grows exponentially under that one's leadership. Look at China. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are coming to know Jesus Christ even though they want nothing of it in that country. Men and women, boys and girls are being arrested for their faith and it has not dampened the light of Jesus. In fact, it has fanned the flame. Paul saw the gospel spread through an emperor. Have you ever heard of Nero? We're gonna be okay no matter what. Yes, as an American, this is what I want. Just say it like that. Don't say, because I'm a Bible-believing Christian, it must be like that. No. As a Bible-believing Christian, it will be as God designed it to be, perfectly. So we'll be okay. Wow, you guys are really on board with that one. Praise God. Be honest, that was the one I was actually worried about. <laughs> Let's look at verse 20. I gotta conclude here. Verse 20 says this, there is certainly no one righteous in the earth who does good and never sins. Yes, I want that preached at my funeral. I'll be honest with you, I have lived that every day of my life. There is certainly no one righteous who does good and never sins. I amaze myself with my ability to find sin. Don't you? It's, it's, it's unthinkable to me how it's like, well, how is that even possible? I was walking this way. How did I end up over here? I don't understand that. Well, here's why, because, and God reminds us of it consistently in his word. You've got it in, in, in Psalm 14. You've got it in Psalm 53. You have it in Romans 3. You have it in Hebrews chapter 9. There are none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as a result, death has come because all have sinned. See, when you go to a funeral, what you're sitting there facing is the end of yourself. It's the reminder that to dust you will return. It's the reminder that you can't save yourself from certain death. And, and I know that's a, a hard thing to swallow, especially at church. It's a hard thing to embrace when you're supposed to be encouraged, but be encouraged by verse 29. Only see this. Here is Solomon's grand conclusion to all these observations he has made. Only see this. I have discovered that God made people upright, although they pursued many schemes. A fascinating verse. I mean, if that's not the picture of, of total depravity, I don't know what is. But we, we, we have pursued many schemes. We seek to fix our sin. We seek to fix our unrighteousness, our own failings, and the way we seek to fix those is by coming up with our own twisted plans to make us better. And we see that in Scripture, right? Adam and Eve, if we eat the fruit, then we'll be as smart as God. That worked well. Nimrod, besides his awesome name, if we build this tower, 
we can reach into the very presence of God. And all God had to do is look down and go, really? Watch this. You can't understand each other. And it's done. You look at the book of Judges. Well, you know what? If we worship God as well as all these false images, surely God will be okay. Those are what we call the schemes of men, and they failed every time. And even though they failed and failed miserably at times, we still follow after schemes today. They just look a little different. I ain't building the tower, but I may be motivated to throw a little extra in the offering plate, hoping that God might bring me something that I don't deserve. Not eating the fruit, but I'm going to do all these good deeds for my neighbors so that God might let me into heaven. I'm not, certainly not setting up asherah poles in my backyard, but if I attend church a certain number of times, then maybe God and I will be okay. And the list goes on and 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 on, and not a single one of those things can rescue you from your certain death. We need to understand that we're sinners and that any one of us in and of ourselves is upright. Every single one of us deserves death as a result of our sin. That's Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. But God, I encourage you, even this week, do a quick search on how many times Scripture says that phrase. But God, Though we are sinners, though we are unrighteous, though we continue to turn our back in God because we've come up with a better plan at times, God has made a way for us to be reconciled with him. Jesus Christ lived a life that we could never live. He died a death that we certainly should have died. He took upon himself the full wrath of God. And because he took our place on that cross and because he rose again from the dead, he brought us reconciliation with God, that perfection in relationship that was experienced back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he didn't make us try to earn that reconciliation. He didn't ask you to measure up so then he could apply that reconciliation to you. He said, come, confess that your schemes don't work, confess that your salvation rests in only Jesus. And he reminds us, as we'll be reminded in just a moment with the elements, that Jesus took your place. And he received in his body the full wrath of God so you didn't have to. Did you need him to do that? By all means. You are way more sinful than you could ever imagine. But you are way more loved than you could ever hope for. God loved us and sent his son. He shed his blood for you. He paid the ransom of your sin debt to set you free. Like I tell you this, there will be no greater thing said about you at your funeral than this. He's a child of God. His sins have been forgiven. And right now, we mourn because we're going to miss him. But we have a great hope. We have a great hope that one day we will be reunited and see him as we see Jesus face to face. And that has nothing to do with his morality. It has nothing to do with his integrity. It has nothing to do with his teachableness. It has nothing to do with his graciousness. It has nothing to do with his lack of anger. But it has everything to do with the fact that Christ paid his penalty. And he's been ushered into the presence of God. 
by the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. I want nothing else said. You? Just a moment here, when we bow our heads and close our eyes and just in silence, consider what it is that the Holy Spirit may be convicting us of today. Take this silent moment just to go into his presence, thankful that he hears you. moment I'm going to pray. Then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And so after I pray, I'll ask that you quietly leave your seat, head to the right, down the aisle to the tables here that hold the elements. Return to your seat with the elements, and in just a few moments, someone will come and lead us, or one of our elders will lead us through um, the observation of communion together. In these moments, we should silently consider what it is to be so loved by God that he would send his son to die for us. We should celebrate the fact that this broken cracker and this juice is a picture of how far God was willing to go to reconcile us. Father, I thank you that in these moments, we can come into your presence with thanksgiving. Father, I thank you that because of Jesus, our our sins, though they're like scarlet, have been washed white as snow. And Lord, I pray for the one here this morning who was among us who, who may not know Jesus as Savior. I pray even now in the quietness of our seats as we prepare to observe communion together, Father, that that they would feel that tugging of the Holy Spirit, that drawing of your Spirit as he continues to bring them, draw them into your presence by pointing to Jesus Christ. May they not be able to say no. May they victoriously cry out yes, agreeing with you in your observation of them that they're sinners. Yes, in accepting the precious gift for salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that we would be overwhelmed with your love for us as we look at these elements. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.